I remember when we were first deciding to move overseas, we had a meeting with each of our four kids who were little at the time. Like I think our youngest was one year old and uh, one of the phrases that came out in the family meeting was we do hard things. So we're saying we are in a war-torn African country. Uh, we're being uh, ambiguous about the name of the country because there's very high persecution. And so the norm here is to kidnap, beat, and kill uh, Christians. So it's a uh, very serious thing. Regular prayer that we pray in the car as we leave in the morning is thank you God for one more day in this city because we never know when the last day will be. Why are we doing what we're doing? When I was a teenager, Bruce McAvoy was the youth pastor at Chapel Street and Jeff Frazier was the new senior high pastor at Chapel Street. There was just a deep conviction of uh, who God is, who he is to me, and that I'm ready to go to the ends of the earth to do anything that he calls me to do. Our decision to move to this part of Africa was a statistical decision. There's dozens of unengaged people groups that no one was going to because of the persecution. Factions in this country are fighting uh, with each other. More than half a million people uh, have been internally displaced and, and have left their homes. There hasn't been good education in this country for a decade. Pe people fear for their safety. I, I remember I was, I was in a car uh, with a friend. He was new to this country and he had said, so Doug, what is the message that you think people most need to hear? And I thought about it for a while. Hope. The title, Hope School, was actually the idea of a Muslim business guy in the community who saw that we were doing Hope Camps, Hope Clubs, and parent trainings to teach resiliency skills for families. And he said, Doug, you have Hope Camps, you have Hope Clubs, you should have Hope School. He said, I have an 86,000 square foot facility that you can use rent-free this message of hope is what our community needs. We started Hope School this past September with 120 students, which by October was 180 students. We have about 20% of the building set up with classrooms. About 80% of the building still needs development. There's so much that can be done, but like we don't have kitchens, we don't have refrigerators or microwaves, like there's, so there's certain pieces, there's not things for the kids to play with at recess. The mission is we want to bring hope 
and healing to traumatized families. And ultimately, we want them to develop a relationship with Jesus and follow Jesus. We believe each child has a unique God-given identity and special calling. We teach through different character traits, and each of those character traits line up with the fruit of the Spirit. Education so lines up with the Christian worldview that we can ask whatever question we want, uh, we can share whatever doubt we want, and that the answers will line up with our faith. And we believe if in this culture we develop a generation that learns to think critically, this is going to cause a seismic shift in how they approach who God is. As we do hard things, we kind of feel weak, but in that, God shows himself to be strong. And in doing hard things, we have experienced way more joy, way more of a sense of who God is and connection with him. This has been our hardest year ever. It's also been our most fulfilling, joyous year of significance. Well, I've said many times in many ways that I, I love almost everything about Christmas season. Uh, of course, I love the biblical story, which we're going to get to in just a moment, but, but I love the Christmas trees, and I love the lights, and I love uh, the festive atmosphere that seems to be in the air at this time of the year, you know, the Christmas spirit. But there are um, a few things that I, that I just don't enjoy so much, that I don't love. There's a few things that bug me about this time of year. I wonder if I could share just a couple of them with you, not like you have a choice, but... Um, <laughs> The first thing that I struggle with is what I call unfortunate decorating choices. Now, in our neighborhood, just within two or three blocks of our house, uh, I found three such unfortunate choices. This one I call T-Rex Santa. <laughs> the, uh, have you seen these? These are inflatables of Santa riding a dinosaur. I'm not really sure when dinosaurs got involved in the, in the whole Christmas thing. Um, we were, my son and I were walking with his two-year-old daughter uh, recently, and she came across the house with the T-Rex Santa, and she said, that's not safe, Santa. She said, that's true. Or how about this one? That's in our neighborhood. I call that dancing Santa, or rocking Santa. I don't really think I have to say any more about that. Or how about this one? Now, I call this one second coming Santa, because... He looks like he's descending with power and great glory, and it's very confusing. Uh, another thing I find difficult to enjoy are weird children's books. Uh, my granddaughter has a book of Christmas stories, and one of them is called Ten Timid Ghosts on a Christmas Night. And you read through the story, and the, and the ghosts scare Santa when he comes. Now, who writes a book about ghosts at Christmas for children? for crying out loud. And then one more thing that I don't enjoy. I do not enjoy um, Christmas without snow. How many of you are dreaming for a white Christmas right along with me? Oh, a few of you. It's been like eight or nine years since we had a white Christmas. This is what I want to see. 
I mean, I want to see, maybe not that much snow, but I want to see snow. So if you don't like snow at Christmas, you probably have to blame me because I think it's out there because I've been wishing for it for a long time. So it's my fault. But today is the fourth part of a series that we've called uh, The Spirit of Christmas. We've been talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the great Christmas narrative. And we began a few weeks ago in part one with uh, the prophet Isaiah who told us that a shoot would grow from the stump of Jesse, that as a Messiah would come in the power of the Spirit. And then we moved on to part two, which was how Zechariah and Elizabeth and their unexpected child, born in their old age, who turned out to be John the Baptist, all would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Last week, we saw how the Holy Spirit came upon the young girl Mary so that the child she would bear would be the Holy Son of God. Now today, we look at a character that probably doesn't show up in the top ten lists of Christmas characters from the Bible. It's one we don't usually associate with the Christmas story. But this was a man who was enabled by the Holy Spirit to see what no one else had yet seen in the promise of God. We're in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read today verses 25 through 32. So you can look them up in your Bible or watch on the screens. Or just listen as I read. Luke writes, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, I'm going to continue in a second. Let me fill in here what's happening at this part of the story. The first thing we notice is there are three references to the Holy Spirit already in this part of the story. But before we get to the Holy Spirit, just a word about what's happening. We're told earlier in Luke 2, and verse 21, that when Jesus, the baby, was eight days old, his uh, parents took him to be circumcised by a rabbi, which was the Jewish custom in those days. This story comes to us at when Jesus was 40 days old, so about a month and a half, and Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem uh, in a way, for a dedication ceremony that was required by Jewish law. It was called the redemption of the firstborn, and it required a sacrifice. The typical sacrifice offered would have been a lamb, but because Joseph and Mary were a poorer family, they were allowed to offer the sacrifice of two young pigeons. So that's what's going on. They've brought Jesus to be dedicated uh, to the Lord. So Simeon, it says, verse 28, he took him up in his arms, the child, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, as I said, this uh, story about Simeon might seem a bit obscure to us, but uh, the Renaissance artist Rembrandt, another art history lesson here, uh, was fascinated by this particular story in the New Testament. In fact, he either painted or sketched this scene at least eight different times in his career. 
Uh, this first uh, painting is uh, called The Presentation at the Temple. Uh, Rembrandt painted it in 1631 when he was 25 years old. Now notice, he paints the whole scene here. You see the background of the temple, the pillars, and you see all the characters involved, but you don't even see Simeon's face at all. See, he has his hand lifted there. You can barely see the child. Now notice this next painting, which he, was called Simeon's Song of Praise, painted in uh, 1669. It's the last painting before Rembrandt's death. Notice the difference. Here he's zoomed in almost intimately close so you can see the face of the child and the face of Simeon as he looks upon the salvation of God. What that looks like to me is as Rembrandt became an older man, he saw the scene in a different way. And he's looking more intently, more intimately upon the salvation of God. What we want to look at today is the role of the Holy Spirit in Simeon's life. We're going to see three things. First, his waiting in the Spirit, and then the promise of the Spirit, and finally, the witness of the Spirit. First, waiting in the Spirit. Now, one of the other things I'm not particularly fond of at the Christ, in the Christmas season, at least in our culture, is what's called Black Friday. You know, it's the day after Thanksgiving when people all flock to the local stores to try to get uh, discounts and deals on the latest iPhone or technological device. Um, did you know there's a company uh, that you can, um, that offers professional line sitters. It's called Skip the Line, and for $35, you can hire someone to stand in your place in line for an event like that. But the truth is, you know, we all spend a portion of our lives waiting, and no one can really do that for us. For example, uh, research shows that the average American now spends two whole days every year just waiting at red lights. Okay. We will spend 43 days in our lifetimes waiting on hold on the phone. And that's a little bit what it feels like. Uh, right now, you might be waiting for packages to arrive at your home from Amazon. Here's what I notice. Our frustration with waiting is in inverse proportion to the perceived value of what we're waiting for. Isn't that right? What I mean is, the more valuable something is, the more likely we're willing to wait for it. Isn't that right? Verse 25 says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now we don't know a lot about this man Simeon. Luke just tells us that he was a man in Jerusalem, meaning he was not necessarily an important man, a well-known man. Because if Simeon had been a priest or a rabbi, Luke, who was very detailed in his research, would have certainly shared that with us. He just says, a man in Jerusalem. But he does tell us three specific things about Simeon. First, that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Now, those two words together just tell us that Simeon was a man who honored God with his heart and with his life. Today, we would just simply call him a godly man, and a good man. Second, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, this is significant in a way that we might not notice right away. Uh, at this time in God's history, uh, Pentecost had not yet come. Jesus had not yet promised the Holy Spirit to every believer. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, God would send his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon certain people at certain times for particular purposes. Eventually, through Christ, 
we know that every believer has been promised the Holy Spirit. I'll talk about that in just a second, who lives in our hearts by faith. But here we see that Simeon is described as a man who was in the Spirit and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. That simply means that God has chosen this man for a specific purpose for a specific time. The third thing we see here is that Simeon was waiting. He was waiting. We learn from the story that Simeon was likely a very old man at this time. Uh, Christian tradition says he was over 100 years old, but we don't know for sure. But it does mean he was probably a child or a young boy when the Romans, under a commander named Pompey, uh, besieged Jerusalem in 63 B.C., which resulted in 12,000 Jews being slaughtered at the hands of the Roman army. So Simeon had lived his whole life knowing that story and under the Roman occupation. His whole life. All he knew was Roman occupation and he's waiting for what's called the consolation of Israel. This is simply a way of saying that he was waiting for the promised Messiah to deliver his people. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. This is called a messianic prophecy. Isaiah is saying that God has promised a Messiah who will bring comfort and peace to his people who will be the consolation of Israel. So Simeon is a devout and righteous man who is waiting for the promise of God. He's waiting for the promised Messiah. And he's been waiting his whole life. We'll talk just for a moment about waiting. In general, uh, we as North Americans uh, are not a waiting culture. I've been in other cultures in the world that are much more um, uh, used to waiting uh, than we are. We're not a waiting culture. We might be the most waiting averse culture in the history of the world. We don't like to wait. Let me give you a few examples. The other day I was driving through Geneva, heading somewhere, and I, I got stopped by a train. But it wasn't a commuter train, it was one of those freight trains, one of the long ones. So I don't like to wait. So I pulled my car out of line, did the old three point U turn, and drove around the long way to get around the train, knowing it would take me longer. But I don't like to wait and sit still. How many have ever done that at a train stop? Ah, see? Yeah, we see we don't like to wait very much. Or consider um, an Instapot. You know what an Instapot is? You know what a Crock-Pot is, right? Well, an Instapot is like a Crock-Pot on steroids. What a Crock-Pot can do in four hours, an Instapot can do in 25 minutes, right? Because faster is better. And we don't like to wait. Or how about Pop-Tarts? Have you ever read the back of a Pop-Tart package? It has heating instructions. It says, for microwave heating, remove from package, heat on high for three seconds. Any culture that needs breakfast in three seconds has a problem with waiting. We hate to wait. And yet, waiting is part of faith. At this point in the story arc of the Bible, the Israelites have been waiting for the Messiah. 
It's been some 700 years since the prophecy of Isaiah when he wrote, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is where we began the series. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 700 years. It's been 700 years since the prophecy of Micah when he writes, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel. We saw earlier in this series that Zechariah and Elizabeth waited into their old age for the birth of a child because Elizabeth was barren. Then the angel Gabriel shows up and he says, Your prayer has been heard. You will have a son. Here's what I thought about. Can you imagine how many times over the years Zechariah and Elizabeth had been on their knees praying, praying, asking God for a child? Can you imagine disappointment Month after month, year after year, decade after decade, when Noah's child arrived until they were too old to even think about it anymore. And I would guess that they probably stopped praying about it long ago. Here we see Simeon waiting. He's believed God's promise of a Messiah. And he's waited and waited his whole life under Roman occupation. Can you manage to imagine how many times Simeon would have prayed, Oh God, how long do we have to wait? How long do I have to wait to see your salvation? Waiting is a big part of this whole Christmas story. Pastor Jeff began the series a few weeks ago by saying that we live between the advents. We live between the advents. What he meant was we live between the first advent when God became flesh and Jesus was born to a virgin laid in the manger in Bethlehem. The whole story. And then the second advent, which has not happened yet, when Jesus as the risen Christ, the eternal king, returns again in power and glory to redeem all things. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul talks to us about the relationship between waiting and hope. He writes, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Israel was waiting. Elizabeth and Zechariah had waited. Simeon is waiting and maybe here this morning you know what waiting is like. Maybe you're waiting for a prodigal to come home. A prodigal son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter. Maybe you're waiting for a better job, waiting for better health, waiting for a better economic situation. Maybe waiting for a prayer to be answered. Maybe even now you're praying for something that's good, that's important, but you're waiting. Waiting is part of faith, this part of the story tells us. Waiting is part of prayer. In fact, in many ways, faith is waiting. And prayer is waiting. I think we even see here that Simeon, in Simeon that waiting is the place where we experience the Holy Spirit's work in us. He is waiting in the Spirit. The second thing we see is the promise of the Spirit. Christmas is a season of promise, I think we would all agree. The decorations, even the goofy and somewhat unfortunate ones, hold the promise of a celebration that's coming on Christmas morning. The brightly wrapped packages under the tree bring the promise of gifts given in love. The season itself holds the promise of being together as families, laughter and fun and lots of food. Christmas is all about promise. 
Verse 26, we see, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We've seen that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, that he was waiting in the Spirit. And now we see that the Holy Spirit reveals three things to Simeon. First, that Simeon would not see death until he sees the Lord's Christ. Now, why would the Holy Spirit make this particular promise to Simeon? We aren't really told why God chose Simeon for this promise. Perhaps uh, it was because he was a righteous and devout man. That would make some sense to me. Perhaps it was because Simeon waited in faith his whole life. Maybe because he never stopped hoping, that he never stopped believing the promise of God and the Messiah, that he never stopped praying. That would make sense to me too. But I think for us today the question is, what promise does the Holy Spirit make to us, to we who believe today? Let me just tick through a few. According to the scripture, the Holy Spirit promises to us that we are children of God if our faith is in Christ. The Holy Spirit promises that we have an eternal inheritance in Christ. The Holy Spirit promises to remind us of all that Jesus taught. The Holy Spirit promises to convict of sin and to assure us of God's grace. The Holy Spirit promises to grow His fruit in our lives as we live in Him. And if you've put your faith in Jesus today as Lord and Savior, you already have all these promises of the Spirit. You don't have to wait until you're old before you die to see the salvation of the Lord. He's already given it to you. And then we see here, when Simeon sees Mary and Joseph and the child, he identifies the child as the salvation of God. He says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. I can die now in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Here I think Simeon sees something that only the Holy Spirit could have revealed to him. He sees the child in Mary's arms and knows that the promise of the Spirit has been fulfilled. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, it's something interesting here in the language. We can assume that uh, if we were there at that moment, Simeon would have been speaking Hebrew, the Hebrew language most likely. And in the Hebrew language here, the phrase, your salvation, would have been said, spoken as Yeshua, which means the salvation of Yahweh. It also is the name Jesus in the Hebrew language. So Simeon is actually saying, my eyes have finally seen your Jesus, your Yeshua. He's saying that salvation is not found in religious law. It's not found in religious rules. It's not found in religious rituals. Salvation is not something you do at all. Salvation is a person. It's someone you know. And that person, Yeshua, Jesus, would be, secondly, a light to the Gentiles, he says. A light to the Gentiles. Now, I've shared here before that I have kind of a love-hate relationship with uh, Christmas lights. I like the Christmas lights. They're beautiful once they're up. They're festive. But 
on the way to getting up, you know, they get tangled. Every year, half of them don't work. You've got to go back to the store and get more. But once they're up, they're nice. But why do we go through all that? Why do we do it? Well, cultural tradition, partly. Because we want to celebrate Jesus as the light of the world? Yeah, hopefully that's on our minds. But Simeon here gives us just a slightly different reason. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, he says. For revelation to the Gentiles. Now a Gentile, as you know, is anyone who is not Jewish, not of the Jewish people. Simeon was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Mary and Joseph were Jews. The Jewish people thought of themselves as the chosen people of God. The law and the prophets belonged to them. But here the Holy Spirit reveals to Simeon that the child, Yeshua, who is God's salvation, is for the Gentiles too. That means he's for your neighbor who has the awkward decorations, or maybe no decorations at all. It means he's for the families and the children of a war-torn African country that Hope School is trying to reach. He's for each one of them. It means he's come for all 24,000 people groups on the face of the earth. And it means he's come for us. We are Gentiles. This is for us. So every time you see the lights of Christmas in your neighborhood or up somewhere like that, every single light that you see represents a person that Jesus came to save. Try looking at it that way as you drive through neighborhoods this evening. Every single light that you see, Simeon says, this child came to save. The Holy Spirit reveals to us who Jesus is and reminds us of the promised salvation. And the third thing we see is the witness of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit. Verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon is now the third witness to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. Elizabeth was the first. Remember, she was visited by Mary. She said, why should the mother of my Lord visit me? The second were the shepherds out in the fields when the angels announced to them, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And Simeon is third. But he's the first to have a full understanding of what the Messiah had come to do. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many and for a sign that is opposed. What does that mean? The Spirit is allowing Simeon to see that the child, this child, Yeshua, will be both rejected and loved. He's referring back to the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 that says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The Holy Spirit allows Simeon to see not only that some will believe and follow the one who is God's salvation, but others will reject, will reject him and that this child will suffer. He says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I was thinking about that. We do child dedications a couple times every year here at Chapel Street. I think over this past year we dedicated some 50 children, young children. And we always do a prayer for them. 
a personal prayer for that child to bless them. Imagine if the prayer went something like this. And thank you for this child. We ask that you bless them with your favor and your grace and your love because they're going to be rejected by many and they're going to suffer great things for you. <laughs> That'd throw a little damper on the whole dedication ceremony, wouldn't it? But that's what Simeon is doing. This is the first hint of the cross in the entire story. Simeon says a sword will pierce Mary's soul. And of course, this is a unique message just to Mary as the mother of Jesus, but it's a message I think only mothers, only a mother can fully understand because a mother feels the pain of her child in a different way, in a deeper way. And one day Mary would stand before the cross, a Roman cross, and watch her adult son die a slow, agonizing, painful, and public death, and her so a sword would pierce her very soul. But I, this is what I see here that this child has also come to pierce our own souls, our own hearts as well. In the book of Acts, also written by Luke, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches the first sermon, and we're told that his listeners were cut to the heart by his message, and that they repented, and they were baptized, and they came to faith. See, the story's telling us that Jesus didn't come to give us a nice cultural holiday with trees and lights and Christmas hams. Jesus came to save us from our sin. Jesus came to go to the cross. Jesus came to pierce our hearts with his love, his grace, and ultimately through his salvation. Here's what we take away. We cannot fully celebrate Advent, Christmas without seeing the shadow of the cross fall across the tree. We cannot fully celebrate Christmas without our hearts being pierced by the child born to Mary, by the child blessed by Simeon, by the man on the cross. They go together. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this righteous and devout man, Simeon, who waited in faith for your promise, that the Spirit enabled to see your salvation and to bear witness to you as the light to the Gentiles, to us. I pray that you would pierce our hearts again this Advent season, or maybe for the first time, with your love and your grace and your salvation, that we would pray with Simeon. Now your servant can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Amen. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. As you leave today following the benediction, stop by the Welcome Center, pick up a couple of invitation cards, invite someone to join you for Christmas Eve services, 3 and 5 p.m. Saturday evening. We look forward to seeing you there. Receive now the benediction. May we go now in the name of Yeshua, Jesus, the salvation of God. And may the Holy Spirit pierce our hearts again with his grace, his joy, and his hope. Amen. Have a great day.